0: Okay, good morning everybody. Um, I'll go ahead and summon everyone in and uh, ask everybody to have a seat. And uh, I will not do what uh, teachers will sometimes do, which is ask everybody to move forward, right? In part because when I come in here to Sunday school, I always sit in the back row and uh, uh, my liberty to do so has always been respected. And so I will return the favor and you may sit as far away as you like this morning, right? As far away as you like, but uh, anyway, um, uh, let me open us in prayer, and then we'll get started in just a second here. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we could be together this morning. Uh, We pray that you would bless uh, Pastor Josh and his family as they're away, and that you would bless um, our time together this morning as we open your word, and uh, consider this uh, further, this document that our uh, church has prepared to help us think biblically about how you would call us to live as, uh, as sexual beings, and as those who have been called into the fellowship of, uh, of Christ's church and called to pursue holiness. Uh, bless this time. Give us a full measure of your spirit, for it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, so as you all know, I am not Josh Anderson, nor do I play him on TV. Um, Josh and his uh, family are uh, still away at uh, on, on vacation, and so uh, we have a, a guest, uh, uh, pastor uh, preaching this morning. Nate Waddell um, will be filling the pulpit this morning, and Josh asked me to um, teach Sunday school this morning, which I'm happy to do. Um, I was a little bit self-conscious that he asked me to, um, to teach Sunday school uh, when we're talking about concupiscence. If you look up uh, what concupiscence means, or by the, by the end of this uh, Sunday school lesson, you'll, you'll see why that might be a little strange. But, uh, but at any rate... Um, We've been, as you know, if you've been with us in the past uh, several months, we have been going through the PCA's uh, study report on human sexuality. Uh, We've had some interruptions where we've gone off and done other things occasionally week by week, but our our general objective has been to slowly move through that report, and we've gone through the first... if you remember how the statement is structured or how the document is structured, there are 12 statements at the very beginning that try to crystallize and kind of uh, communicate the main point. right? And then it goes into much greater detail um, in, the, in, this, in the latter portion of the document. Uh, we've been going through that first portion of the document and we've, looked at, we've been looking at each statement uh, in turn and we've come to statement five, which is a statement about concupiscence. Um, which may not be a term that you're readily familiar with. I don't know if you use that every day and every week at the breakfast table and so forth. But uh, we'll we'll correct that if I, if you're unfamiliar with that term. Uh, what I'd like to do is just read this statement for uh, really quickly. I've given you. Uh, there should be two handouts going around. Uh, so one is a handout that just says uh, looks like this and says statement five concupiscence at the top of it, and then I've given you a, uh, another handout that has uh, excerpts from an online article. Um, so there's two pieces of paper going around, and what. What I'd like to do is just read the the study committee statement really quickly and then um, I've given you if you look at the box at the top a little overview of where we're going to where I'm going to try to go and we'll see how far we can get Uh, but let me just read this statement to start with and then we'll unpack it together so statement five on concupiscence we affirm that impure thoughts and desires arising in us prior to and apart from a conscious act of the will are still sin. We reject the Roman Catholic understanding of concupiscence, whereby disordered desires that afflict us due to the fall do not become sin without a consenting act of the will. These desires within us are not mere weaknesses or inclinations to sin, but are themselves idolatrous and sinful." Nevertheless, second half of the statement, we recognize that many persons who experience same-sex attraction describe their desires as arising in them unbidden and unwanted. We also recognize that the presence of same-sex attraction is often owing to many factors, which always include our own sin nature and may include being sinned against in the past. As with any sinful pattern or propensity, which may include disordered desires, extramarital lust pornographic addictions, and all abusive sexual behavior, the actions of others, though never finally determinative, can be significant and influential. This should move us to compassion and understanding. Moreover, it's true for all of us that sin can be both unchosen bondage and idolatrous rebellion at the same time. We all experience sin at times as a kind of voluntary servitude. Romans 7 verses 13 to 20. Okay. So that's the statement and I want to just unpack that um, a, a bit to the extent that we can this morning. If you look in the box what I'd like to do uh, my lesson overview here I'd like to start by just talking about what this view that the, uh, that the... I want to start with the first paragraph, and I want to start by talking a little bit about what this view that the, that the report is rejecting is, the Roman Catholic view of concupiscence. I want to talk about that for just a minute uh, or two. And then I want to contrast that with the, with the Reformed view, right? The Reformed churches have historically taken a view that is contrary to Rome on this point, and the study committee report in that first paragraph is is, uh, is asserting or upholding, right, or affirming the Reformed view over against the Catholic view, and so I want to talk about those two things a little bit. Uh, part three, I want to just talk about uh, briefly about a couple of biblical reasons why we would do that. I mean, the point here is not ultimately to just be in line with what our church teaches, although I, I want us to have a high view of that, right, but... Um, the, the point here is to follow the Bible, right? To think as God would have us think, to, to, to align our thinking with what God has revealed of himself in his word. And so I wanna talk a little bit about the uh, some biblical reasons for the Reformed view. And then more briefly, I want in uh, section four to apply these issues to, to, the, to the question of sexuality. And then uh, in section five, I wanna look at some pastoral cautions. And here I wanna, in particular, look at that second paragraph, Uh, that we just read, the one that begins, nevertheless, we recognize that paragraph, I think is very wisely written and it urges us to some caution about how we uh, deal with these matters, particularly when we're talking to people who actually experience same-sex attraction and particularly when those people are within our own congregations or our own social circles. And so I want to, and I think that that second paragraph is very wisely written and um, I want to call attention to some particular pastoral, to the pastoral cautions that it calls us to. Um, so that's where I'd like to go this morning. I'll kind of pause along the way to ask if there's questions, but, um, but that's, uh, that's the, the roadmap, so to speak. Okay? Um, to start with, the Roman Catholic view that uh, the first paragraph is rejecting um, there is uh, if you look under number one on the handout uh, there 's a short helpful overview on the website simply catholic and that 's this this second handout that I gave you that just contains excerpts from uh, an online article so this website simply Catholic, just contains um uh, articles written at a very basic lay level explaining basic principles of Catholic theology and Catholic pr- uh, practice for inquirers or or uh, or practicing Catholics who are, who are relatively new to their faith or, or untutored in their faith. Uh, this is an article that was written earlier this year in February of 2022 20, uh, by um, a Catholic priest, uh, Monsignor uh, William J. King, who's in uh, Harrisburg. Okay, and this is the way he describes it. I thought this was a, a, a nice uh, basic description. If you look at the top of the outline, or of the handout, he says... Uh, The mechanic at the repair shop explained to the frustrated vehicle owner that the wheels of his car were out of alignment the mechanic asked if the driver had recently driven through a pothole or perhaps had hit a curb he explained that that could be sufficient to have forced the wheels out of alignment all the driver knew was that it took a lot of work to drive straight down the highway with the car constantly pulling off center without constant attention and constant adjustment of the steering wheel the car tended to drift off the road one big pothole can do that, the mechanic informed the puzzle driver, and after that it's almost impossible to go straight without constant correction. And this man writes, what's true for an automobile is in this sense also true of the human soul. One big sin, that of our first parents in the garden, and then it's almost impossible to go straight without constant correction. We might say that after original sin, it's nearly impossible to stay on the straight and narrow. Theologians call this tendency to sin, I'm speaking as a Catholic theologian here, Catholic theologians call this tendency to sin concupiscence. It is, morally speaking, the tendency to go off course. Right? It's, a, it's an inclination towards sin. And then he describes this in a little bit more detail, a little bit more theological detail in the next paragraph, if you keep going for a second. He says, in the original innocence of our human nature, there was a perfect harmony between body and soul. So when we were first created in Catholic teaching, we were created with souls and bodies and they were in perfect harmony. They worked in perfect, uh, they were perfectly synchronized with each other and they didn't interfere with each other. Um, the separation from the body at death is a consequence of original sin, right? So when Adam and Eve sinned, the ultimate penalty of that was death and death was a ripping of body and soul apart, a separation of body and soul. And in the meantime, right now, while we're in sin and on the way towards death as our final end, right as our final uh, destination, in the meantime, that separation of body and soul kind of exhibits itself in a preliminary way by body and soul being in tension with each other, fighting against each other, right, pulling in opposite directions. Um, And that pulling of body and soul in opposite directions opens us up to sin and to temptation, and that's what the Catholic Church calls concupiscence. If you look at the rest of that paragraph, concupiscence is a symptom of the disharmony between body and soul since the body and its appetites or desires want to pull us a certain way and the soul wants to cling to the higher things of God and grace concupiscence is an innate tendency to be vulnerable to temptation to be inclined to sin to be predisposed to desires that do no honor to the grace of of God, right? So that's his definition of what uh, what concupiscence is, right? To put it just a little bit differently, uh, the Catholic Church teaches that when God created us, as I said a few minutes ago, He created us body and soul. We were this body and soul composite, and on their own, the body kind of tends towards earthly things, and the soul tends towards heavenly things. And then what God did in Catholic teaching is he, he infused into us this special grace, right? In Latin, the phrase is a donum superadditum, a superadded gift. He infuses into us this special grace. And the grace did two things. It kind of elevated us and gave us the ability to have union and fellowship with God. And it also kept the soul and the body in line with each other, right? In line with each other. Uh, it, it, it kept them in balance, right? It harmonized the two of them. Right, when Adam and Eve sinned, in Catholic teaching, what happened is that grace was pulled away. Right, they lost it, and when that happened, two things happened. Right, uh, one is we fell out of communion with God. Right, we were no longer in, 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 in special fellowship and communion with God. Right, and the ultimate result of our not being in fellowship and communion with God is death, because we uh, because God is the author of all life. But then, what also happened is that the soul and body, which were perfectly harmonized before. Now we're in tension with each other. We're fighting with each other. There's this inner tendency for the body the, uh, to, to to go beyond reason, right? And for our desires and our appetites to express themselves in an irrational and unreasonable and excessive way, right? And that tendency, that kind of inner warfare between soul and body that opens us up to sin and makes it easier for us to sin, that's what Rome refers to as Concupiscence, right, is this inner drive towards sin, right? Um, <clears throat> now, crucially, right, crucially, what's really important for our purposes this morning is that Rome does not think that that inner inclination towards sin is itself sinful, right? Rome doesn't think that that inner inclination towards sin is itself sinful. If you act on it, that's sinful. But the inclination itself, that openness towards sin, right, is not itself morally culpable, is not itself sinful. And this author expresses that in that last paragraph on the handout that I gave you. Right, he says, the Council of Trent, which met from 1545 to 1563, and if you don't know, was a council that was specifically called to... To, to, um, to, to denounce what the Protestant churches were teaching, right, but the Council of Trent taught that concupiscence, quote, comes from sin, so it's a result of original sin, and it induces to sin, right, it kind of opens us up to sin, yet concupiscence is not itself sin. Concupiscence makes us vulnerable to sin, but susceptibility to temptation is not sin, how we act in response to the temptation determines the rightness or wrongness, the sin. With constant attention, or more accurately with the acceptance of God's constant outpouring of grace, right? So if we... If we work hard and rely on divine grace, we do need divine grace, but if we rely on divine grace and work hard, the human person can be unaffected by this tendency to drift off course, just as a driver who is attentive to the path ahead can constantly adjust for a misalignment in the car's front end, keeping the car moving toward the goal of the driver. Indeed, the Council of Trent noted that concupiscence, quote, cannot harm those who do not consent but manfully resist it by the grace of Jesus Christ, end quote. Again. So that's the Catholic teaching, right, on what concupiscence is. In a nutshell, it's this inner inclination towards sin that is not itself sinful, right? If you consent to it, it's sinful, but it's not in and of itself sinful. And if you jump back over to the this main handout that I gave you, um, underneath where it says the Roman Catholic view, I've given you a couple statements of this that aren't from... Uh, you know, just some random website for Catholics online, but are that that are directly from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, right? If anybody's not familiar with that, the Catechism of the Catholic Church was put together about 30 years ago now, in the early 90s, right, under the Pontificate of John Paul II, and it uh, contains a, a a modern statement of the of the Catholic Church's uh, uh, teachings. The study report actually alludes to the Catechism of the Catholic Church in the footnotes when it's, when it uh, talks about concupiscence. But here's a couple of uh, statements from the catechism that, that, that essentially say what the, in, in more complex language, what that short article I just read to you says, right? Um, as the article states, Rome teaches that as a result of the sin of our first parents, quote, human nature is inclined to sin, and that inclination is called concupiscence, end quote. Okay, later, it defines concupiscence as, quote, the movement of of the sensitive appetite, right, so that's the body, the the appetites that come to us from the body, contrary to the operation of the human reason or of the soul, right, body and soul are in tension with each other and fighting against each other. It unsettles man's moral faculties and without being in itself an offense, inclines man to commit sins. So notice that statement there, it inclines man to commit sins, but it is not in itself an offense, right. Um, if you jump down to the next paragraph elsewhere, uh, the Catechism expands on this claim. Here's another quote. A certain temporal consequences of sin remain in the baptized, that is, those who are Christians who have entered the Catholic Church, such as suffering, illness, death, and such frailties inherent in life as weakness of character and so forth, as well as an inclination to sin that tradition calls concupiscence, or metaphorically the tinder for sin. Right? Uh, it's, it's the it's it's not fire but it's the it's the tinder it's the stuff that gives rise to fire it's the kindling you use to make fire but it's not itself fire right since concupiscence is left for us to wrestle with it cannot harm those who do not consent but manfully resist it by the grace of jesus christ right if we utilize grace and resist it right concupiscence itself cannot harm us is not sin right and so that's the catholic view hermann bavink at the very bottom of the page, who's a, um, one of the more famous, uh, one of the more important uh, Dutch Reformed theologians of the 20th century, uh, he summarizes Rome's position this way. Rome decreed that concupiscence does not injure those to who do not consent to it and can only be called sin because it is of sin and inclines to sin. Right? That's Bavinck's summary of Rome's position, which I think is, uh, is fair. All right. So jumping to number two, the traditional reform view. The reform view differs in several respects, right? Uh, the reformed understanding of original sin is different than the Catholic understanding of original sin on several in several ways. But it's that last point, right? That concupiscence or the inclination to sin is not itself sinful. It's that last point. Uh, that, that the report, the study committee report is really emphasizing in paragraph one. It's that difference that they're camping out on and they want us to see, right? Is that uh, contrary to the Catholic view, the reform view has been that uh, the, that within us which inclines us to sin is itself sinful, right? That it's not just morally neutral as long as we re- resist it, that it is itself sinful. Right? And I've given you uh, uh, several different paragraphs here, um, and these are largely taken, most of them are taken directly from the study report in the footnotes. These are the paragraphs that they offer in defense of the of the Reform position. And so let me, uh, at the very top of the page, after describing Rome, Rome's position, Bovink states the Reform view. He says, quote, the Reformation spoke out against Rome's position, asserting that the impure thoughts and desires that arose in us prior to and apart from our will, our sin. Although sin originated by the will, it now exists outside of the will and is rooted in all the other faculties and powers of human beings, in their soul and their body, in the lower and the higher cognitive and conative capacities. Right? Cognitive means thinking, and conative means acting. It's an old-fashioned way of talking about that. Right? Uh, if you jump down to the next paragraph, uh, more authoritative in a sense than Bavinck is Calvin, right? And Calvin articulates the reform position as well, and this is a quote from the Institutes. This occurs in the study committee report in the footnotes. He writes, Between Augustine and us, we can see that there is this difference of opinion. While he, that is Augustine, believes that as long as they dwell in mortal bodies. I'm sorry. Uh, d- 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 while he, that is Augustine, concedes that believers, as long as they dwell in mortal bodies, are so bound by inordinate desires, that's the word in Latin concupiscence, right? Uh, so long, They're so bound by inordinate desires that they are unable not to desire inordinately, yet he dares not call this disease sin. Content to designate it with the term weakness, he teaches that it becomes sin only when either act or consent follows the conceiving or apprehension of it. That is, when the will yields to the first strong inclination. Right, so that's the view. Might as well come right out of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Right, Concupiscence is not sin. Right, It only becomes sin when the will yields to it. Right? Calvin says, we, on the other hand, deem it sin when a man is tickled by any desire at all against the law of God. Indeed, we label sin that very depravity which begets in us desires of this sort right, so that's Calvin, right, the inclination to sin, the depravity which leads us to commit sin is not morally neutral if we resist it, it is itself sinful, Calvin says, right? and then one final quote again from Bavinck, um, likewise, Bavinck argues that sin is found not in the excess of the passions, but, quote, in the manner and direction of those passions, Later he writes, quote, This means, on the one hand, that the objects or images that the spirit and body deposit in the soul as the seed of the feelings are impure, sinful, and corrupt. And on the other hand, that the feelings themselves are corrupt, reflect impurity, are blurred and muddled. Right? So notice that statement, the feelings themselves are corrupt. The inclination to sin inside us is itself corrupt and impure and blurred and muddled. So I think three really strong statements of the reform position there that this inward inclination towards sin, which we agree with Rome is there, is not morally neutral if we resist it. That even if we resist expressing it in our external actions, those inner inclinations, that inner attract- that attractiveness of sin, the thing in us that finds sin attractive, is a, itself sinful and impure in God's sight and something that we need to be cleansed of um, Uh, I put, um, let me read this last quote for a second, and then I'll pause and ask if there's any questions. This is a quote from a more modern text. This is uh, uh, Drs. Dan Allender and Tremper Longman wrote a book in 1994 called The Cry of the Soul that expresses, I think, something similar to what Calvin is trying to express here. Uh, They write, "Um, our culture tends to presume that emotions are amoral, neither right nor wrong. According to this perspective it 's not what we feel that 's potentially sinful, but rather what we do with our feelings right? i know i 've thought that way at times, and uh, you know uh, we hear that kind of thing a lot. The problem with this view is its assumption that some element of our personality escaped the consequences of the fall. It seems more accurate to say that our feelings are not any more or less sinful than our thoughts desires and behaviors, right? Emotions can be sinful just like thoughts, desires, and behaviors can be, right? They're either holy or unholy. They're not morally neutral and it just depends on what we do with them. They're either holy or unholy and there can be unholy inclinations or desires or appetites or feelings and so forth. And that I think is a faithful statement of, uh, of what the traditional reformed view has been in contrast to, to Rome's view on this point. Okay. Um, right, let me stop there for a second. Are there any questions thus far? Donna? So many. Okay. okay. But I'll, I'll limit one. Only one? Okay, yeah. Um, so I think and it's possible that that last, that last quote, um, that last paragraph kind of answered it, Yeah, Rome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that essentially what it Would we as reformed believers say that that's what they're asserting? Yeah, I think if if you want to put it really simply, behind all of this is a basic disagreement between the reformed tradition and Rome on total depravity, right? Um, you know, we believe not that the whole human being, not that the human being is as bad as they could possibly be, but that every part of the human is touched by sin in some way, shape, or form, right? Rome rejects that explicitly. If you read the paragraphs kind of surrounding those pa- passages from the Catholic, uh, from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, they expressly, they explicitly refer to the Protestant view that there's an inner corruption and reject that, right? So there's, a, there's an imbalance right but that 's not a result of uh, of of uh, of of ten- the wheels on that car may be out of alignment, but the wheels don 't have to be bad wheels right they 're just out of alignment right um that's that 's not our view, so I think you 're right to see a, a, a there's a corruption that we affirm that Rome does not yeah yeah, other questions yeah uh so many um <laughs> go ahead, yeah. Yeah. Um, we don't like that maybe it's more like corruption yeah. um, that we don't have control over. And I think I've heard sort of a biblical definition of sin is more like, or what would you say it is? Because I think it explains it a little bit. A biblical definition of sin? Of sin. Because I, I, I think it's not really a, an act so much of a yeah. State, right? yeah. I would just go with the Westminster Confession and Catechism and say sin is any want of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. Yeah, I would just do that. And And notice, there's no statement there about volitional, about whether about a volitional want of conformity to or transgression of the law of God, right? Um, You know, if uh, if uh, we can uh, we can, um, right? I think that I think that there can be sins that there can be sin is not limited to acts of the will, right? Like Bavinck said, and I think that that does offend certain modern sensibilities that we have. Right? But I think that that doesn't necessarily change things. There's a moral character to our dispositions, right? There is a moral character. There's a moral uh, charge to our dispositions. And I think we're disinclined to think that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Alyssa, you had your hand up. Um, so if in the yeah. Is part of human nature, yeah. It is the part of human nature, yeah. Well, in uh Rome is going to say something similar to what we would say that um Jesus is different than we are in the sense that he doesn't have the same infirmity he doesn't have the same uh the same sinfulness that we have, right? So the the um without going into the depths of Roman Catholic Christology, right? The the things that were lost for us in the fall right, the things that were lost for us in the fall that made us liable to sin, that doesn't pertain to him in the same way. That doesn't make him less than fully human. It actually makes us less than entirely fully human, and it makes Jesus you know, more human than we are in a certain sense, Right, if I could put it that way right? Um, so G- Jesus, um, you know, we confess along with uh, in, in all of our creeds, right? We confess that Jesus was like us in every respect yet without sin, right? So whatever it is in us that inclines to sin, Jesus lacks that, right? Uh, but But what's in us that inclines us to sin isn't some kind of a perfection. It's an imperfection. It's a brokenness. It's a lack or a or a deprivation of something, right? And so Jesus has what we were deprived of. Jesus is, is, is not broken in the ways that we are broken, right? So Jesus is a kind of pristine humanity, whereas we're a, 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 a broken humanity, right? And so Rome would say something along those lines, and we would agree with them on that. Right. Does that help? Okay. Matt, Matt did you have your hand up too? My hand was up for Alyssa. For Alyssa. Okay, very good. Is there any other? Uh, Jeremy? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Let me jump over here to Felicity. Yeah, Felicity. So what's the difference between con- concupiscence and then temptation? So that's a good question, and uh, the whole next section is on temptation, so I'm going to do what teachers like to do and punt that till next week, right, mm-hmm. when somebody else other than me gets to answer it, right? Okay. Um, to, uh, the, the, to, uh, in a nutshell, concupiscence makes you liable to temptation, and temptation is something... in, in, in uh, well, I'm going to punt it, right? Jeremy, go ahead. Uh, I, I, I was just want to mention that. Yeah. Like, that I think that it's like that a lot of this would make sense in the sense of if you were talking to people who had the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the time in the New Testament we talk about people who are, you know, about like, you know, don't commit these specific things. Where it says, you know, mm-hmm. like, like if, if, if if this passage talked about the, the the symptom of the disharmony between the soul and the body, you know, but then if you talked about the soul as in like the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. and then our like the, like worldly spirit, mm-hmm. or worldly spirit or mm-hmm. like that, mm-hmm. of this kind of like warring between the two, where mm-hmm. these messages are spoken to you already a Christian, already has the yeah. spirit. And yeah. 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 Turn away from sin and yeah. exert the will mm-hmm. and refrain from sinning. Mm-hmm. But not from like a legal perspective. Mm-hmm. More like the paternal perspective. Mm-hmm. So I think that, that, yeah. Yeah, that a lot of it's like, like confuses yeah. mm-hmm. this like paternal relationship that we have mm-hmm. with God in terms of mm-hmm. dealing with our sin and him correcting us mm-hmm. with the legal thing mm-hmm. before we're saved mm-hmm. where we are either under judgment mm-hmm. or not under judgment. And yeah. That's like salvation. Yeah. To ma- to make to make sure I'm understanding you, you're saying that that um the, the Catholic view or the Reform view or both um make sense, make more s- sound like they're being addressed more to people inside the church or outside I, I the church. Yeah. Sometimes I wish that in Reformed circles, yeah. yeah. We like talked more about mm-hmm. uh, talked more about mm-hmm. the turning away from like like yeah. the exerting of the will mm-hmm. to you know, to produce good fruits. Yeah, fruit, right? yeah. From a Christian perspective, Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. Like, I, I appreciate mm-hmm. what you're saying, the Catholic position, mm-hmm. if it's being spoken to Christians, mm-hmm. not to people who are like... Outside of the... Right. But yeah. you see why? Because yeah. like, as soon as you start attending a, Christ, a Catholic church, mm-hmm. that's like part of the salvation process. It's mm-hmm. mm-hmm. not this great mm-hmm. divide between yeah. saved and not saved. Yeah. I guess, let me say two things to that. Um, I don't know if this will directly address what you're talking about, but the 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 Catholic if the if a Catholic priest or a Catholic practitioner were speaking to somebody who's outside of the faith altogether right they would not say well just 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 pluck up your your you know just screw up your courage and you know pluck up your your strength and uh, and and resist concupiscence they're going to say absolutely you are reliant on grace right without if you notice those paragraphs right. Uh, if you notice those paragraphs, they say this cannot be resisted apart from grace. We have to cooperate with grace right, but it cannot be resisted apart from grace right so they 're going to and grace is received through the church so they 're going to call uh, people toward now we would still differ with them in a significant sense, but' they're going they 're going to offer an evangelistic call of sorts right yeah. and, uh, and, and to um, and to to those inside the church they 're going to say um, they're going to say, even if you've been baptized and received grace, right, um, concupiscence is one of those effects of sin that remains and won't be completely removed until until you're in a glorified body, right? And in the meantime, your call is to cooperate with the grace you've received and and, mortify, and resist concupiscence, right? And uh, so there they would have there 's an evangelistic call to those outside the church, and there 's a call to struggle right uh, to those inside the church now we 'd agree with them on both of those points as far as it goes right we, we would say there needs to be an evangelistic call to those who are outside the church those who are inside the church are called to work out their salvation with fear and trembling right to to pursue holiness and so forth we 'd agree with all of that. The real nub of the disagreement between the two of us is over whether. Uh, whether the concupiscent wh- whether that inner inclination towards sin is itself something that that has a kind of unholy character to it right i think that's the key difference between the two of us right now and the reason the reason they're emphasizing that is specifically because of what i'm going to get to in point 4 no, okay, right yeah I, I think that uh, yeah. Think that kind of discussion also yeah. has, you know, has like something because mm-hmm. I'm just, but yeah mm-hmm. sure, I'm, yeah sorry. yeah that's okay yeah no i think i think in, let me yeah. A call. Yeah. For us, mm-hmm. it would be like to receive grace.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: To receive, receive Jesus. Receive yeah. Jesus. Receive Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Because oftentimes when they say receiving grace, mm-hmm. they're talking about through the workings of Mass. Yeah. And attending Mass. Right. At yeah they would say through baptism and uh and baptism imparts great grace to us and they would ultimately attribute that to the merits of Christ which have, have provided the efficacy of baptism but they would uh yeah there there's an emphasis on the on the on the uh, the sacraments as uh, as uh, as directly providing that grace in a in a manner that we would dispute with them as a, as a, yeah yeah yeah. There, there are a lot of differences between the Reformed and Catholic tradition that are kind of lurking in the wings, waiting in the wings back here, right? And uh, that's why I'm trying to, in a sense, just, just focus our attention on the one that the study committee report is really emphasizing, which is on whether this inclination to sin is itself sinful, right? Uh, And I think Calvin states the matter as clearly as he possibly could in that paragraph, that yes, it is. Right, uh, um. and you know, uh, jump down to number three. Let me move on a little bit so that we finish in the next 10 minutes, but move on to number three. You know, Calvin's not just saying that because he wants to be a hardliner, right? He's not just like, well, we take sin more seriously than everybody else does, right? Or, or something along those lines. Um, and he's trying to be faithful to the way Scripture talks. And I tried to give you a sampling of, uh, of, of passages here. Um, I, I think myself, one of the clearest statements on this is Psalm fifty one five and Luke 6. Um, I gave you a few more things than that, but let me, uh, well, let me just read these really quickly. I'll, I'll skip the Job passage, but Psalm fifty one five a famous passage that you've heard, I'm sure, around Colleyville before. But behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, that's fascinating. Being conceived and being brought forth is a reference to the moment of birth, right, before you've done anything. Right, and the Psalmist says that already at that point one is in sin, right well, what is there you haven 't done anything yet. The only thing that 's in you is an inner inclination towards sin, right. Uh, and yet the psalmist calls that inner inclination towards sin iniquity, right? He calls it sin, right? There, there's a sinfulness that attaches to us from the very moment of conception or from the very moment of birth, from the very moment that we're brought forth. There's a sinfulness that attaches to us. We don't just have an inclination to sin that will become sinful if we consent to it, right? There's an actual sin that attaches to us there, right? um, Jeremiah seventeen nine. You know I think is, is just fascinating the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it right I mean the picture of the heart there is of a heart that is a uh, it's not just inclined to sin but as long as we resist that it's morally neutral if you peer within the heart itself there's a desperate sickness there And then I think nothing could be clearer than our Lord's statement in Luke 6, verses 43 to 45, right? He says, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorn bushes nor grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good and the evil person out of his evil treasure or the evil treasure of his heart produces evil. For out of the abundance of his heart his mouth speaks. So there's no picture here in Jesus's teaching of a kind of morally neutral inclination to sin that only becomes sinful if we consent to it or resist it. I mean, Jesus' teaching could hardly be clear there. Um, our actions proceed from our hearts and bad actions, good actions proceed from hearts that are good. Bad actions proceed from hearts that are bad, right? Sinful actions proceed from hearts that are sinful. Out of the abundance of the, mouth, uh, of, of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? And so I think it's passages like these and you could multiply examples here. Um, that, that's given rise to the reform position that uh, the, the heart's inclination towards sin is itself sinful. Is itself something uh, that that is to be cleansed and then uh, and then mortified and, and uh, sanctified. And at section four, if I can just press on, in you know, a section four on on uh, on the outline, I, I want to bring this around to sexuality. Right. So far, we've been speaking just in kind of abstract terms about sin itself. Uh, The upshot of all of this is that sexual inclinations that are contrary to God's word, including but not limited to same-sex attraction, are sinful in themselves even if we never act on them, right? Um, that's where the study committee wants to go with this, and the emphasis—that's why it's emphasizing these points—is that it, it wants to emphasize that point, right? Is that uh, same-sex attraction, even if it's not acted on, is not morally neutral, right? But rather sinful in and of itself. Jesus taught as much in Matthew 5:27 to 28. He's not speaking there about same-sex attraction, but he is speaking about sexual attraction, and the point carries over, I think. Uh, where again, our Lord says, you have heard it said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart, right? And as this report put it in last week's section, if you remember that this is a section from the portion of the report that we went over last week, right, Um, it it says, this is from statement four, not only our inclination towards sin, is a result of the fall, but our fallen desires are in themselves sinful. The desire for an illicit end, whether in sexual desire for a person of the same sex or in sexual desire disconnected from the context of biblical marriage, is itself an illicit desire. Therefore, the experience of same-sex attraction is not morally neutral. The attraction is an expression of original or indwelling sin that must be repented of and ultimately put to death. Right? That's the ultimate point that the report is trying to undergird and to make Matt, yeah. So I've got two quick things to make yeah. based on that question. on so yeah. um, point three, um talk a list about the response to Alyssa about about Jesus being not, not inclined in that anyway. Yeah, theory? I think that it's pressed in the Immaculate Conception. Yeah, so I think so Yeah, since so we've been talking about Rome, I want to be careful and emphasize that the Immaculate Conception often refers to Mary, right? Uh, but no, the Virgin Birth—is that what you're talking about? The Virgin Birth. The virgin birth. Yeah, 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 yeah. The Virgin Birth. Yes, yes. I think I mean, the, and our our confessional statements affirm as much. They say that Adam uh, Adam's fall affected all human beings who were descended from him by ordinary generation, and they're specifically talking that way to emphasize that by virtue of the Virgin Birth, Jesus was excluded from that. Covenantal uh, penalty. Yeah. Go, and then the second thing. And the second part, this really relates to probably one of the more controversial things I think that Josh had gotten into. This was last week. Yeah. And talking about basically like same sex attraction and a theme. And I was, I'm not sure if he was saying that it was a, a greater sin, a mm-hmm. lesser sin. Mm hmm. Let's say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Taken advantage of in a um marriage. Yeah. Like later like so yeah. a married man that is attracted to an unmarried woman or whatever mm-hmm. is less of a sin than um, mm-hmm. a same sex attraction. Mm-hmm. And number four is really saying that it's all sin, but I w- I guess I'm really asking for clarification on the point that Josh might have been making last week. Not that you need to speak for him. Right. Yeah, I'll, I'll. uh, I mean, I won't. I won't speak for him. I'll speak for myself. I'll say that I agreed with the point that he made last week. This is being recorded, right? So, I'll say that I did. I agreed with the point that he made. I agreed with the point that he made last week. I won't. I won't presume to speak for him in defense of that point. But um, let me just offer my own thinking of that. I think the. And I want to be very careful here. Section five is pastoral cautions, and I don't want to violate one of my own pastoral cautions but you put me in this situation, right? So, um, so let, me, let me say something just quickly and briefly about that. The Bible does speak about degrees of sin. I think we need to be comfortable with that because the Bible talks about that. Jesus, when Jesus is standing in front of Pilate, Right, says that Pilate, because he's uh, a member of the government, right, um, has a kind of authority over Jesus that Judas didn't, and so therefore Judas's betrayal of Jesus was a greater sin than what Pilate was doing. Right, Jesus talks in terms of greater and lesser degrees of sin. Right, and I think that the the, the scriptures do clearly seem to put. Um, uh, homosexual desire, right, same-sex attraction, in a different category than uh, a heterosexual attraction. In Romans 1, when Paul is talking about God giving over uh, people to their, uh, um, uh, in, in Romans 1, uh, verse 26, Right, It says that for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. I think Paul acknowledges there this distinction between things that are contrary to nature and things that are natural, right? And it's not that natural passions are automatically um, uh, 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 morally innocent, right? I mean, I can act on a natural passion in a way that is sinful. That's abs- I mean, a lot of sins are like that, right? But I think he's acknowledging that there are, sin- there are passions that are contrary to nature, and he's putting those in a different category. And I think we need to be comfortable with the way Paul's talking there, right? And we need to be comfortable with the fact that the Bible talks in terms of a hierarchy of sins, right? And I think we need to be willing to, to, to speak the way the Bible speaks. Um, we need to do it in sensitivity, right, which is point five, right? But I think we need to be comfortable with talking those ways. And so I was myself had, uh, in agreement with the way that he categorized those things last week. Um, and I won't presume to speak for him, but, that, but that's my own view, right? Uh, Scott, did you have a comment? I think one other distinction you can make yeah. is- Mm-hmm. Mm. I think he would agree that sex and lust yeah, if we be can draw a, a distinction between attraction and lust, yeah. right? Which Matt, you were kind of asking a question last week that pertained to that distinction a little bit too, I think if I recall correctly. I don't want to speak. F- I don't want to speak for you, right? <laughs> I'm trying very hard not to speak for people here. <laughs> um, let me let me do the, if I may, right? It's 10:15, and I want to conclude. Um, if I may, g- can, may I indulge three minutes and talk about the pastoral cautions because I do think these are, in some ways, the most important part of statement five. Um, I very much want to uh, state these, right? So let me just read what I have here. Um, Having said everything that we just said, right, these things are to be handled with special prudence and care, to borrow language from the Westminster Confession, right, which that's language the Westminster Confession talks about, uses to talk about how we should handle the question of predestination. And I just use that same language and say, when we're dealing with these issues, and especially in our current culture and context, we need to handle these matters with special prudence and care. If we are blunt and ham-fisted in the way we approach those who are struggling with same-sex attractions, and especially if we do that uh, with those who are in the church and struggling with these things, we risk doing significant damage. Um, And specifically, the report urges us to be pastorally mindful of two things. Uh, First, that many who experience same-sex attraction describe it as unbidden and unwanted, right? These are things that they they, they wish they could be rid of but can't be or have not found a way to be rid of them thus far, right? And so they're unbidden and unwanted. And everyone who is born again has some sort of sin against which they struggle in that fashion. Romans 17, 13 to 20, I'll let you go read that on your own, but that's the place where Paul says, the good that I want to do, I don't do, and the evil that I don't want to do, I do. Right, every one of us, if we um, know the life of faith at all, have some kind of sin against which we struggle in that fashion, and so we need to approach um, those who are struggling with these things with compassion and understanding and love and grace. Um, Secondly, the experience of same sex attraction and related struggles can be partly due to having been sinned against, right? These are not always acts of high-handed rebellion, um, there, there are oftentimes ways in which these things, uh, while, while our sin nature is always involved, right, um, many times these kinds of struggles are a result of significant uh, trauma or abuse or, 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 or sins that a person has suffered. And that also should move us to patience and mercy and compassion. And I want to end by remembering the note on which the previous section of the report ended, and so I've just reproduced that at the end of the, of the, of the section here. We must celebrate that despite the continuing presence of sinful desires and even at times egregious sinful behavior, right, repentant, justified, and adopted believers are free from condemnation through the imputed righteousness, righteousness of Christ, and they are able to please God by walking in the Spirit. Right? And I think that's the note that we need to remember always in dealing with these things. It's those who are repentant, um, uh, those who, are in, who exercise true faith and repentance are justified, adopted, and emp- uh, free from condemnation and empowered uh, through the Spirit to walk in a manner that's pleasing in God's sight. And I think that's the note we need to sound, especially in the church as we talk to those who are struggling with these things. Right? Let me stop there and uh, offer a quick word of prayer, if I may. Heavenly Father, these are heavy and difficult things, especially in the culture in which we're living right now, but we pray that you would give us grace to, uh, to think as you would have us think, to lean into your word uh, with confidence and help us to be sensitive to those in our number um, who struggle with these things. And Father, what one of us is not Uh, sinful in sexual ways and in all manner of other ways and in need of your grace and so grant us that grace and grant us to be forgiving with one another as you are forgiving towards us and give us that heart especially now as we come into worship for it's in your son's name that we pray amen